One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, Episode 2, The Rise of Mercia. Before I pile ahead, some notices for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website inspiringly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And check out this month's featured Agora podcast, which is Tom Daly's American Biographies. I think you'll like Tom's podcast because it's about the history of a country through its people about the lives of the people who shaped it, and not necessarily the ones you'd always expect. So, give it a go. You can find it on iTunes or the website, americanbiographies.webs.com. And also, there's a link on my website to boot. So, this week we return to the political story of Blighty, as it will not be known for another 1,200 years or more. It's a bit messy, but we kind of left the world of Anglo-Saxon politics with the defeat of Pender by Oswu of Northumbria and with his son, Wolfhera, being spirited away under the thick, protective cloak of class warfare, and the loyalty of Pender's thanes, Imin, Aeafa and Aedbert. For three years, Mercia lived under the iron boot of Northumbria in the form of direct rule by Oswu. But the force was strong in Mercia, and by 658, Wolfhera's thanes had raised rebellion and re-established the independent house of Mercia. Now, you might want to hop along to the website and have a look at my regnal lists. I swear they'll give you a really good idea of who's ruling in which kingdom at which time and help you keep a track of things. We'll also show you that Mercy is blessed with the odd hiccup, with a series of competent and long-lived kings all the way up to the 9th century. We're in a period then in which the biggest defining feature politically is what has been called the Mercian Supremacy. Now, it's always seemed to me that historians have the same relationship with a bit of good, honest labelling as medieval monks did with sex. They can't help loving it, but hate themselves for doing so. And so, whenever a historian uses a phrase like mercy and supremacy, they are then required to go through two paragraphs of self-flagellation, whipping themselves with a knotted lash while kneeling naked in front of the altar of history. I suppose the problem is, like the use of the word heptarchy, that such terms simplify in a way that is helpful to explain, but also obscures the subtleties and complexities of the situation. Ho-hum. Anyway, Mercian supremacy. However much the phrase conceals, the kings Wolfhera, Aethelred, Aethelbald, Offa and Coenwulf built a dominance over the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that began to look like the ultimate future until a West Saxon called Egbert came along and before the Vikings arrived and changed the rules of the game. The success and dominance of the Mercians began to look awfully like a proto-United England, land of the Angles. There is even the odd soupçon of claims to be kings of all the English, which I'll describe as we go through, though they are fleeting and short-lived. Actually, despite Frank Stenton's excited claims that here was the start of England, In fact, a much more likely interpretation of events 
is that the Mercian supremacy represents simply the most successful competitor in the world of the heptarchy, rather than a world living under a new vision of one Angolcun living in a united English kingdom. It has to be said, there are a few snippets of evidence that would suggest something else, which we'll discuss as we go through. Now, Wolf here is not a name that many people will have heard of, and it's unlikely that the pubs and clubs of England will ever ring with the sound of this man's name, which is fair enough, it's a long time ago, but he was clearly a reasonably impressive kind of bloke, a man of, quote, proud mind and insatiable will, according to one record, whatever exactly proud mind means. A man who had, quote, inherited the valour of his father and grandfather. And Wolf here had the vision to achieve at least one thing that probably built the foundation of Mercia's later dominance by giving them an unrivalled source of income. We talked last time about the revival of trade in England, about the reappearance of the town. Kings had realised that towns were wonderful things to have and they were a way of turning all that agricultural produce into something much more portable i.e. money. We also talked last time about the appearance of the coin called the Skeata. Through the 7th century, Skeata had become much more widespread. But even by the time of King Athelbold of Mercia in the first half of the 8th century, it's not really clear how far kings controlled the minting of Skeata. They tended to be unmarked with the name or image of the king, though sometimes they had a name there, which was probably the name of the moneyer that produced them. It's possible, actually, that mints were entirely private concerns. The majority of coins were produced in Kent and the Thames Valley, but in the first half of the 8th century there's a massive expansion of minting into all the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And although by the time of Athelbold the scatter had become much thinner, suggesting a general shortage of bullion, converting goods into coin fueled the potential for trade. Towns were a wonderful way of making money, period. A bit like granny. They smelt a bit, but had a heart of gold. Mercia was also blessed with one of the most valuable sites in England, Droitwich. Droitwich happens to sit over a bed of rock salt, and up through the ground bubbles a spring of brine, 30% of which is salt. For those of you who know about these things, I'm told that's ten times more concentrated than salt water. From the Iron Age, the citizens of Droitwich had earned themselves a living by boiling that down into rock salt again. And in fact, some Anglo-Saxon charters refer to it as Saltwich, the town of salt. Mercian kings guarded their gold mine jealously, though with a bit of judicious sharing with the church. And given that a lot of practical people gathered there, it would become a mint as well. OK, but while that's good... That's not the main story. The Mercian kings wanted a way to convert all this salt and the other stuff their people produced into hard cash as much as they could. Like all the other kings, they had their royal ville and associated towns at Repton and Tamworth, but London was already becoming the glittering prize. As I think I said last time, Londonburg, the old Roman London, was pretty much deserted. But by the 670s, there was some limited settlement around modern-day Charing Cross, with timber-riveted embankments on the Thames. And from there, the settlement spread inland, with roads running north to south. And then, in the first half of the 8th century, the pattern becomes much more organised and extensive, in London as at places like Ipswich and Southampton. 
So in London, settlement spread all the way up to Aldwych and north to today's Covent Garden. And then the 730s to 770s saw a period of consolidation and prosperity. The excavations at Covent Garden showed a well-maintained network of roads and alleyways with timber drains on either side and evidence of consistent and constant maintenance. Most of the buildings had street frontages, separated by small streets. Many had yards at the rear, and at the edges, pits were used for the smelly job of tanning. The evidence was for a whole range of crafts taking place there. Metalworking, weaving, textiles, bone and antler working. Some small scale, others larger and more specialised, like a large smithy, for example. Materials collected demonstrated links with the Rhineland, the Low Countries and northern France. London Witch might have been tiny by comparison with today, but already it was becoming the major trading centre in England, the perfect place for traders from the continent to bring their wares to England. And traders and markets also meant the most lucrative income of all from tolls. Kings did love a good toll. Through this period, we see the evidence for royal regulation of trade growing. In a law code, for example, we see the first reference to the witch reeve, to the idea that the witch reeve collected tolls in a specially constructed hall. So certainly, for the Essex kings, Siegehera and Sebi, until the arrival of David Beckham, London was the jewel in Essex's crown. Siegehera and Sebi actually ruled together, in a seemingly relatively harmonious way. But in 664 there was a terrible plague, and the two of them reacted very differently. Sebi was super-religious, so he developed terrible sores on his knees from all the extra praying he did. Actually, I just made that up. But the point is that his Christianity did not waver one bit. Whereas Siegehera was full of fury and betrayal and took his people back to paganism. Now, it could be this that sparked Mercian intervention in the land of the East Saxons, though we don't really know. We do know that Wolfhera was fiercely Christian. Unlike his pagan father Pender, Wolfhere was determined that Mercians should be Christian, and in the words of Bede, free under their own king they gave willing allegiance to Christ their true king, so that they might win his eternal kingdom in heaven. We don't know why and where Wolfhere became Christian, but it could have been his Kentish wife Eormenhild. Maybe it was part of the deal, or maybe he was Christian anyway. But what ifs? With all the enthusiasm of the convert, Wolfhera gave land away to the church and enforced the religion in his lands. And not just in his own lands. When he heard about the East Saxons and their backsliding, he intervened and forced his bishop on them to explain that it wasn't God's fault they were dying like flies, it was probably their own sins that was the root cause, and to bring them back to the true path. By some time around here, by 666, London came under Mercian control, which is faintly ironic, given the date as evidenced by charters and grants of land signed by Wolf here. And there, London Witch would stay, at very least until the end of the 8th century. Wolf here fulfilled the traditional role of all good Anglo-Saxon kings and threw his weight around, extending Mercian influence beyond London into Kent and Wessex. Wolf here would have remembered the sting of defeat at the hands of Oswu and the death of his father. It appears that chucking them out of Mercia wasn't enough. He wanted revenge. The crowning glory of his lordship was to be the final reversal of that pain and humiliation of his youth with the subjugation of the north. He built a great army, twisting the collective arms of the southern kingdoms, 
no doubt filling their heads also with visions of plunder and glory. And by 674 he was ready, taking his alliance north of the Humber to visit the sins of the father Oswu on his son Ekfrith. But as Enoch Powell once remarked, all political careers end in failure, though I doubt old Enoch was thinking of Wolf here when he said it. The result of the Grand Alliance was defeat, despair and humiliation, with a horrible defeat at the hands of Egfrith, and forced to pay tribute. And probably even worse, forced to yield control of the entire lands of Lindsay, modern Lincolnshire, to the grubby hands of the Northumbrians. It's also possible that marriage was part of the deal, since Wolfhera's brother Athelred was married to Egfrith's sister, Osthrith. Now, once the word went around that Wolf here had fluffed it, the wheels started coming off. Despite apparently winning a battle against Wessex in the south, Mercian dominance over Wessex and Kent evaporated. And when he died in 675 in his mid-thirties, it appeared that all talk of a Mercian supremacy had been premature and that Wolf here was a false dawn. All he bequeathed to his successors was London. But that was a duel without doubt. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Up next, then, was another son of Penda, Athelred. To a degree, Athelred steadied the Mercian ship, defeating the Northumbrian Egfrith at the Battle of the Trent, bringing Lindsay back under Mercian control and gaining his revenge. He made great efforts to do the same in the south, but never managed to re-establish the brief dominance Big Brother Wolf here had managed. Probably the most interesting thing about Athelred's reign was an incredibly frustrating line from Bede, remarking that Athelred's wife, the Northumbrian Ostrith, was murdered by Northumbrian thanes. So, hang on just a moment here. Most of the historians I have read sagely remark that maybe this was the result of continuing antipathy between Northumbria and Mercia. Fine, but what does it say about Athelred? Did he approve? Did he watch? Was he jolly grumpy but too weak to object? I would have said that killing your boss's wife would probably be construed as unfriendly. And it has to say something about Athelred's status because it doesn't appear that Athelred was estranged from his wife. Certainly, he sent her off to be buried at the monastery of Bardney in Lincolnshire, and in 704 he abdicated and went to join her, as the abbot of the place, there to die five years later. Anyway, from there, for the next ten years, the line of Penda rather runs into the swamp. The next king, Chenred, was more interested in God, and he resigned to go to Rome, while conversely, the next guy apparently went mad and died because he spent his life feasting, fornicating with nuns and ravishing monasteries. But then it was a monk who told us that, so you might want to treat that with caution. But for a period, certainly, the Mercian rulers faced a different political situation. Although Northumbria was now less of a threat, after their defeat at the hands of the Picts, Kent and Wessex were ruled by stable and competent rulers, Witchard of Kent and Ina of Wessex. Both these guys ruled for a long time between 688 and 726. Both were able, to a degree at least, resist Mercian ambitions and even, in the case of Wessex at least, extend their own. One of the things that Wittred and Ina had in common was the law code. 
Each of them created a law code which are very different, but in their own way showcase something of the way in which Anglo-Saxon society had and hadn't changed. Whitred's code displays something of the special nature of the relationship with the church that Kent had always had. The law codes are less about the regulation of society and much more about Christianity, the church and its rights, since apart from four clauses, it relates exclusively to the church. It's a symbol at the end of the conversion period, in a sense. It enacts penalties for paganism, for breaking the rules of the church. Paganism has moved from being an unpopular choice to being deviant. It points also to one of the outstanding issues of the 8th century in England, the rise of the power, wealth and influence of the church, which we'll come to more and later in a future episode. The church is declared free of taxation. Now, this is a big thing, and it'll get bigger. As the wealth of the church grows, having a significant part of your kingdom free of taxation makes a nasty size hole in your budget. But in status also the church and its ministers are exalted. A bishop's oath, for example, just like the oath of a king, is declared incontrovertible. There is secular interest in Whitred's Code too. The first lies in the role of lordship. While in many ways Wichard's codes still feel like the laws of a primitive Germanic society as far as the historian Frank Stenton is concerned, nonetheless they appear to recognise the existence of a nobility whose title derives from birth, and not only from service to the king, which is recognising the increasing stratification of society. The second point is simply in their existence. Both Wichard's predecessors had also issued codes. Kings in Anglo-Saxon England were no longer simply war leaders, though they would always be that. They had a responsibility towards their people beyond enriching them. They had a responsibility to bring order, peace and justice. They were expected to patronise the church and promote Christianity, to promote learning and wisdom. Not to go and just nick a Mars bar from the guy next door. The same applies to the laws that Ina issued. But Ina's code is much wider and of a different quality. It's not just a series of penalties for offences, it's a coherent attempt to bring together a comprehensive set of rules that govern a Christian society, brought together by the king, his nobles and his clergy together. These law codes have survived because Alfred attached them to his code in the 9th century. For that reason they may not be complete. Alfred had a habit of taking out stuff he didn't agree with but their survival through this route illustrates how important they were 150 years after their creation. Ina's laws tell us something of Anglo-Saxon society. The structure of society described is pretty simple. The king, his thanes and the churls. Slaves are also around, but essentially invisible. They don't really count, though they are given some rights. There's no feudal structure here i.e. the thane is not an intermediary between the churl and the king, there is instead a direct relationship. There is no mention anywhere of a role for the lord in administering justice as an intermediary between the king and his people. The churl was a free man, he therefore had the right to bear arms, unlike later centuries after the Normans arrived. He was considered eligible for military service and to be involved in folk meetings. The churl's free status is indicated by the fact he has a guild a value placed on him should he be killed by another. In Ina's laws, the Churl's Guild was set at 200 shillings, one-sixth of the Guild of the Thane. 
As we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, though, what is agreed on by all historians is that the status of the churl is already in decline, a decline that will increase over time towards the 11th century and the arrival of feudalism, so much so that the word churl acquires the slightly pejorative sense that it remains today. The law codes make provision for both British and Saxon subjects, and although they're biased towards the Saxons, they're by no means oppressive. They support the view we've all pretty much agreed with now that the Anglo-Saxon invasions did not result in the complete displacement of the British, but rather an assimilation. And finally, the word English is used, maybe a tantalising glimpse of the beginning of a single Anglo-Saxon consciousness. Ina ruled for 37 years, and although the events of his reign are rather obscure, there's no doubt he was a powerful and statesmanlike ruler. In this he was helped by his father. Very unusually, Ina became king while his father was still alive. It's evidence, if any more were needed, that any atheling and member of the royal family could become king, and the instability this could cause. While Ina was therefore given a helping hand, don't for a moment imagine that meant he had a trouble-free existence, throne-wise. Just like every other kingdom throughout the 7th and 8th century, there were all kinds of spats, when other kings like the East Saxons, harbour royal West Saxon exiles at their court. So, in 721, Ina had to kill a royal pretender, for example. But there's no sign that apart from the wearying requirement of the Anglo-Saxon king to murder a few rivals, that Ina was ever secure in his rule in Wessex. Ina doesn't live in history because he was an outstanding warrior, but he does his bit according to his idiom. Although he never appears to attempt to establish an overlordship of Mercia, he clearly holds sway over Wessex without reference to Mercia, and established control over Sussex and Kent. It's under Ina that one of the remaining British kingdoms appears to have finally fallen. Dumnonia, Devon, in the southwest, finally appears to have come within the kingdom of Wessex, leaving only Cornwall holding out for independence. Just as his laws speak of Ina's consciousness of an enhanced role and responsibility, so does his relationship with the church. Ina does what was now par for the course. He bequeaths all kinds of lands and riches to the church. But he acts as a leader of the church too. He drew together the disparate and slightly chaotic independent institutions of the conversion period Wessex into a structure under a single bishop in Dorchester-on-Thames. By the time Ina had followed a reasonably common route into retirement, abdicating his throne and travelling to Rome to die, there was a new king in Mercia. Athelbald became king of Mercia in 716. With Athelbald, the line of Penda finally came to an end since he was descended from Penda's brother, Iowa. Athelbald was something of a character and seems to have inherited something of Penda's character even though he might not have been directly descended from him. So much depends on the words you use, doesn't it? So to one historian, the words tough and vigorous seem like an appropriate way of describing him. To others, violent and turbulent fits the bill better. Hate it or loathe it, Athelbald was not the kind of guy to die peacefully in his bed. His life is in many ways the very template of the Anglo-Saxon king in the Heptarchy. Wars all over the place. Wandering into Somerset to do a bit of ravaging and give the king of Wessex a kicking fighting the Welsh one day, then teaming up with the Picts in Scotland against the old enemy Northumbria another. There is simply no way of relating Athelbald's life in detail that would not include a rather wearying list of battles and struggles for dominance, 
which is the problem with telling the story of these centuries, to be honest. So let's not do that. But just to make the point that whatever words you use to describe Athelbold, you really, really ought to find a place for belligerent. You might also find a place for divisive and unpopular. He was forced, for example, to make a payment to an abbess for striking one of her family. The church had a real downer on him. He appeared to take a cherry-picking approach to Christianity, preferring the pagan multi-wife approach, and so that's what he went for, along with a harem of concubines. The church's objections included, of course, the mandatory accusation of non-fornication. The key giveaway, though, is really the manner of his death because after his long and generally successful reign, Athelbold was killed by his bodyguard, who killed him while he slept. The thick smoke of such a betrayal of the warrior code suggests there's a fire somewhere. Having said all of that, the case for the prosecution, as it were, Athelbold was without doubt successful by the yardstick of 8th century Anglo-Saxon England. It took a while to come. Really, it's not until the deaths of Wichard of Kent in 725 and the abdication of Ina of Wessex in 726 that Athelbald is able to come to the fore. And where we get just the faintest whiff, the skinniest soupçon, the very smidgen, of a suggestion that folks out there were thinking of one kingdom of the Anglo-Saxons rather than a bunch of warring independent kingdoms. There's much modern debate on this. There'll be more next time. There's a lot of picking away at the evidence to question whether Athelbald was as powerful as it appeared, and a general downgrading of his view of his dominance over other kingdoms. But for me, I'm going to follow Bede, who essentially put him up there as overlord of all the kingdoms south of the Humber. But the whiff, soupçon, and indeed smidgen, come from a charter in 736, which bears a famous line which describes him as king not only of the Mercians, but also of the provinces which are known as the Soutangli, i.e. the Southern English. How true it is, as opposed to how much is just vainglory, is up for grabs to a degree. But it's also clear we're still in the traditional position of Imperium, or Bretwalder territory. Athelwold was the biggest fish in the Anglo-Saxon pool, but not much more than that. One other thing to note about our Athelbold, which we'll deal with also as part of the bigger themes. Athelbold essentially folds under pressure and insults from the church, and he too, just like Wichard, exempted church lands from tribute and burdens, but with a kicker. This is that the church would continue to be responsible for what were called common burdens, namely the maintenance of bridges on their lands and the maintenance of fortifications. This is a compromise that becomes very standard. And let's hear also the positive messages about Athelbald. Boniface the missionary we talked about last time sung with praise Athelbald's liberal almsgiving, reported him as, quote, famed as a defender of widows and of the poor. So that's good then. I should note that Boniface did also slip into his missive that Athelbold had violated church privileges, quote, with greater violence and extortion than any Christian kings have ever done, that he'd never taken a lawful wife and had fornicated with nuns, but hey, he can't have everything. Essentially, Athelbold had asserted mercy and leadership south of the Humber without ever being without challenge, and his dominance probably extended not much further than a recognition of his preeminence and a bit of tribute-taking. But the manner and suddenness of Athelbold's death also raised the spectre of a period of political chaos in Mercia, because there was more than one Atheling knocking about, of course. One of these was a young man from the land of the Chwissa, called Offa, probably named after one of the distant and legendary ancestors of the Mercians, Offa, king of the Angolan. Offa had been patronised by Athelbald's court. He was a descendant, like Athelbald, of Eowa, Penda's brother, 
and Athelbald's cousin. Quite a lot of clever money would have probably been on offer to succeed, but the laws of chaos will out. And in 1757, on Athelbald's murder, it was in fact a man called Bjornred who became king of the Mercians, who ruled them, according to the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, miserably. But who knows? Maybe the murder of Athelbald was orchestrated by Bjornred, but as it was, his bid for power was to no avail. Within a few months he'd been driven out, and Offa had asserted his right to lead. In Offa, the rise of Mercian power becomes genuinely converted into Mercian supremacy. But we'll hear about that next time, not today. Meanwhile, as ever, grovelling and tearful thanks to all of you listeners out there for whom the Anglo-Saxons are not the forgotten backside of English history, but its living, breathing heart. Have fun, everyone. Joy, laughter and delight beyond measure. And see you all next time, Ski. Mm-hmm.